You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Heartbeat here on Converge Media. I am Cindy Bright, your host this evening. We have a great show planned this evening as we're going to continue our conversations on racial equity and progress for brown and black people. Before we start the show, before I introduce in the guests, I've got this five minute um, humanitarian award video I want to show you because I and I want you to pay attention to the words that Jesse Williams is using in here because we're going to unpack that and talk about how that is still relevant today. So have a listen to this and then I will introduce in our guests this evening. For his continued efforts and steadfast commitment to furthering social change, we are proud to present such a deserving recipient with the 2016 BET Humanitarian Award presented by State Farm, Jesse Williams. Peace, peace. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, BT. Uh, thank you, Nate Parker, Harry, um, and Debbie Allen uh, for participating in that. Um, before we get into it, I just want to say, you know, I brought my parents out tonight. I just want to thank them uh, for being here, for teaching me um, to focus on comprehension over career, that uh, they make sure I learn what the schools were afraid to teach us, and also to thank my amazing wife for changing my life. Now, this award. This is not for me, this is for the real organizers all over the country, the activists, the civil rights attorneys, the struggling parents, the families, the teachers, the students that are realizing that a system built to divide and impoverish and destroy us cannot stand if we do. All right? It's kind of basic mathematics. The more we learn about who we are and how we got here, the more we will mobilize. Now this is also in particular for the black women in particular, who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves, we can and will do better for you. Now, what we've been doing is looking at the data, and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. So what's gonna happen is we are gonna have equal rights and justice in our own country, or we will restructure their function and ours. Now, I got more, y'all. Yesterday would have been young Tamir Rice's 14th birthday. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Tell Rakia Boyd how it's so much better to live in 2012 than it is to live in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner. Tell that to Sandra Bland. Tell that to Dorian Hunt. Now the thing is though, all of us in here getting money, that alone isn't gonna stop this. All right? Now dedicating our lives 
dedicating our lives to getting money just to give it right back for someone's brand on our body, when we spent centuries praying with brands on our bodies, and now we pray to get paid for brands on our bodies. There has been no war that we have not fought and died on the front lines of. There has been no job we haven't done. There's no tax they haven't levied against us, and we've paid all of them. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she, she, she would have been alive if she hadn't acted so free. Now, freedom is always coming in the hereafter. But you know what, though? The hereafter is a hustle. We want it now. And let's get, let's get a couple things straight, just a little side note. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not our job. All right, stop with all that. If you have a critique for the resistance, for our resistance, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. If you have no interest, if you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Sit down. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. Thank you. I needed you to hear that tonight. I have periodically shared that video because of how powerful it is to hear how he's describing the current state in 2023, even though that was in 2016, of where we are as black Americans. Let me introduce in our esteemed guest tonight. Um, he's a friend of mine. So when you see me, the warm smile on my face, uh, I want to introduce Effinus Henderson and Effinus and I worked together for uh, 10 years, although he stayed a whole lot longer than me. <laughs> he, um, let me welcome in and I'll let him introduce himself and his background because it's pretty impressive. Let's welcome Effinus Henderson on the heartbeat. Effinus, welcome here this evening. Well, thank you. And thank you, Cindy, for inviting me. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, for those of you who may not know uh, much about me, uh, I worked for the Warehouser Corporation for 40 years in a variety of HR roles. I come from North Carolina. I grew up on a farm. This one, this one. I grew up on a farm uh, with 11 siblings and a father who had to raise us after my mother passed from lupus. So I knew then uh, what I wanted to do as I became an adult. And uh, that was to do, do something other than farming. Um, and so that's what grounded my um, my interest in diversity and inclusion, because I came from a caring community. 
where everyone in the community really helped each other out. They looked past each other's faults and frailties and said, if we're going to succeed, we've got to succeed together. It was a segregated community. Uh, I was there at a time when we were just integrating schools and when the Klan and others would call our house and threaten to burn crosses in the yard and so forth. So it was a, it was a deep, uh, experience for me to to realize that. And so when I graduated from college, um, I married my sweetheart, Helen. Uh, we both went to North Carolina Central University and I started my professional career there. And so throughout my career at Weyerhaeuser, um, I continue to have a focus on diversity, uh, even as an HR professional. And I retired as the chief diversity officer for the company and one of the, one of the first um, in our company and in the industry for that matter. And so um, that's been part, I'll just pause there to see if Cindy has any questions, but I'll <laughs> pause there just to share uh, that part of my background. You're also been heavily involved at the national level with Urban League issues, the Tacoma Urban League, you're on their board. You've been on for a hot minute there as well. You have longevity. You're able to, you're able to manage it, Ethnis. I got out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you've been doing a lot. So I wanted to make sure our community knew who you were and what you're doing. And so, you know, I showed the Jesse Williams video because I thought it was important to talk about the resistance, the restructuring of um, these issues or the systems that are impacting diversity progress. Can you talk about your own experience as a chief diversity officer and the resistance that you faced doing this work? Well, I think one of the first things I'll tell you is that a lot of folks who say they're committed to diversity really don't fully understand what that means. Um, we hear a lot. I, I wrote an article recently on uh, LinkedIn called uh, I'm Woke Y'all, and it was a response to what we see as a lot of growing pushback to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And um, I said, we've got to do something. We really need to talk about this issue uh, from a realistic point of view. Part of this work is about addressing inequities in the workplace, in our communities, and in society as a whole. Uh, and in order to do that, one of the biggest challenges was to get leaders on board with why this is important, uh, starting with why are we doing this? Well, there are lots of reasons for it. It's looking at who the stakeholders are in the communities in which we operate, uh, from the community members who expect organizations to be much more inclusive, from customers who expect uh, you to uh, have a workforce that represents them, to the employees that you're seeking to hire. You know, they want to look at organizations that have a climate for uh, this type of work. Many organizations saw uh, this effort uh, in the way that we saw it in the, in the 70s and 80s as just a compliance issue. Uh, diversity isn't just a compliance issue, it's a strategic imperative for organizations who are, who are committed to this work because what we're seeing now in a lot of the reports from McKinsey, from Catalyst, from Ernst & Young and others, is that the organizations that do value diversity, who really focus on changing systems, practices, and processes, and behavior of leaders uh, to be more inclusive, um, 
they generally outperform those who don't. So there is a, a reason for that, but there are those that don't understand and, and you've got to figure out a way to engage them, help them understand the imperative for why this work is important and really uh, assist in changing those systems and practices that are inherently bi biased and create a disparate impact uh, in, in the communities or for, or for underrepresented and marginalized communities. And you stuck with it for a long time. Um, what's going through me as you're describing all this is the corporate, I mean, the corporate description or the corporate way that organizations try to engage in this work. What has inherently happened and not necessarily at Warehouser because I'm, we talked earlier before the show, how many of you guys stayed for a long time? 30, you were there 40 years. 40 years, um, yes. So unheard of, I think, in a lot of uh, businesses and organizations that people stayed that long, and particularly people who come into the roles as chief diversity officers or chief equity officers. What's your um, observation of other DEI leadership people in roles and what their experiences are in organizations. Well, what's really surprising uh, these days, we, we're seeing reports where the average lifespan for a chief diversity officer is like two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So people don't stay. And whether the, the question is, why is that occurring? Is it because uh, the environment, the work experience of the work environment is so toxic or leadership is not as committed and they're trying to shoulder a lot of what needs to happen without engaging and involving more of the broader population in that organization? Um, but it is um, it, it, it is um, an area where people think of it as as the kinds of things like uh, having a holiday celebration or uh, for a particular uh, demographic group like Black History Month or uh, even Pride Month and things like that, as opposed to looking deeply at what needs to change in the organization. If you're truly committed to having a workforce that embraces everyone, uh, where are you today? You know, where are the gaps? And what's your action? You have to have a fairly intentional strategy for addressing those actions. Uh, and then you have to have some measures to tell you how well you're doing uh, towards that objective. Um, I served as the convener for a working group uh, under ISO, the International Organization for Standardization. Uh, and we, uh, the working group uh, met for five years to help establish the first global standard for diversity and inclusion in um, uh, in the world uh, through ISO. And fortunately, last year, uh, that uh, standard was adopted by ISO and it becomes the first guidance standard for organizations to look at a much more systemic approach to addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion from the work environment to the governance processes and systems to the HR systems and practices, but going beyond that to relationships with stakeholders, with suppliers, in the communities as well. I just want to acknowledge Carolee Regis just uh, made a comment about a twilight zone to see uh, you and I on here together. Hi, Carolee. Hello, Carolee. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so, yeah, so some of what you said in that, FNS, when you, you know, your observation around uh, the life cycle of a chief diversity officer, the two and a half years, 
you know, I've said two years, it's, it is between two and two and a half years that most chief diversity officers are exited and they are exited in ways that I'm just going to say are blaming them for a system that has been in the works for 404 years and no one's bothered to deal with it. And then we're expected or the chief diversity officers are expected to turn it around in two years. The funding or lack thereof of resources put behind these efforts is significant. And in fact, today I, I was telling you earlier that I went to um, I went to the Northwest Diversity Supplier Council uh, meeting and I was watching presentations this morning about the state of black America here in Washington state and the, the state of black business and revenue coming into our businesses. And I'm not exaggerating when I say when the presentation slides were up there, I felt like it was 1992 because it's identical to my early career days that we talked about. And the people on the graphs with the lowest numbers were still the black people. Now, here we are. 2023, the DEI is under attack across the country, the messaging, the things that are being said. And frankly, every business will, every consultant will tell you every resource we had internal to organizations say the funding has dried up. There is no more investment into it. Um, and yet we're still expected to fix things. Has that been your, do you observe that in some of the consulting work that you do? Well, I think for the companies that really get it, um, that there still is ongoing work. This, there's no cookie cutter approach to solving the issue. You know, in the last two to three weeks, there have been several issues in the news um, regarding black women. Uh, there was a, uh, I'm going to not do it justice to quote the number. I want to say $336 million verdict for the Federal Express law, the black woman against Federal Express. She had to sue for racial discrimination. Um, there was Equinox, the gym, black woman sued uh, $11.5 There was recently uh, Kaiser Hospital had to settle $11.5 So the black women in these organizations who are not necessarily chief diversity officers. Oh, and then let's not forget our recent uh, Dr. Karen Johnson, who was uh, in the news recently over um, my word would be petty uh, issues that the uh, news reported out on. And so we continually get to see that the burden of trying to move these diversity efforts forward or equity issues are continuing to fall on the backs uh, with lack of support or no support. Um, and it is forcing black people, black women to have to go sue in order to be seen, heard, valued, that sort of thing. Um, what are your thoughts about, I mean, you, you saw the local news about our chief equity officer and her termination. What thoughts or what occurred to you when you read what was going on? Well, I think the first thing that occurred to me was why did this occur and what type of process did they use to get to the conclusion that they arrived at? Um, change in any organization is fairly challenging. And so part of it is how do you bring together the right, right folks to help shape and drive the policy? And when you bring in people who are different, who bring different points of view, perspectives and backgrounds and lived experiences that you don't fully understand, uh, sometimes you jump to the wrong conclusion about that leader's capability, their, you know, their uh, strength. 
And so for me, I think it's it's really being empathetic. I mean, there's a lot of discussion these days about empathetic leadership, uh, trying to fully understand what it takes, particularly. And that's where I think oftentimes people have a challenge when it's the first role of its type in an organization. People haven't seen that type of role. They haven't seen people in those types of positions pushing back, asking questions, expecting uh, things to be done differently if you're going to affect change in the organization. And that becomes very uncomfortable. And if you don't have a leadership team that is equipped to be empathetic, who become uncomfortable, uh, generally the response is to push back and to try to marginalize the individual. Uh, I don't know if that's the case in this situation, but oftentimes we see that. And it's particularly uh, something that we see with uh, underrepresented groups and especially people of color and especially African-American women, as we, we've heard from Cindy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes, um, you said it diplomatically about people haven't seen how this works. See, Efrenis, you and I, we had 20 Five years ago, right. a long time ago, I was as sassy then as I am now. Um, is it that they haven't seen this role or is it that they can't handle black folks because they aren't around us? And so what they're doing is critiquing who we are and they don't receive who we are. And one of the things you and I had talked about earlier was the fact that um, we are constantly walking on these eggshells trying to say and communicate and do things that appeases them, but they won't take two minutes out to learn to pronounce effiness, right? Like they want to know what your nickname is or the effort is always on the backs of the people who are brought in to fix a system that they did not create. And so I wonder, what are your, do you think this is fixable? Well, it has to be fixable. I mean, if we're going to survive as a society, right? I mean, it's in what I'm seeing now and why I think there's a bit of tension, more tension than we've seen in prior years is because in American society, uh, people of color are beginning to become more of the, the majority. I mean, and, and they're bringing a variety of lived experiences and so forth. And up until 10, 15 years ago, you didn't have that level of diversity in organizations. And so there's an expectation that I want to bring my full self to, to work, irrespective of whether I'm black, female, LGBTQ, all of that. And in many organizations, that has not been something that uh, leaders have, have had to contend with in the organization as a whole. So for me, I think the, the issue is, is, is really helping people understand that it's not a choice. You can't be silent. You've got to speak up when you, when you observe and see injustices in the workplace. You've got to speak up about it. And you've got to provide an opportunity for someone who might bring a different point of view, different perspective, different approach, to not be fearful of that because it's different from what you might have done, um, but to embrace it and to try to understand and uh, be sympathetic with uh, different approaches. You know, my biggest critique when I was internal was, and I think many black women, is our communication styles. Um, I'm candid. It's just who I am. It's how I speak. I speak the truth and, and I go to the heart of matters without sugarcoating them sweeping them under the rug or dancing around it. Because that's a big, the communication style in many companies is 
they talk around issues and never to the issues and don't want to deal with it. And when we become razor or laser focused on speaking and telling the truth or pushing harder, that's when this whole performance management system starts to kick in for black people, particularly black women, Mm -hmm. because we are candid. And so we don't have the kind, we weren't raised like princesses. And I mean, we, we just come from a different world. And so what are your thoughts about, you know, the black women that are getting kicked to the curb? And there's a lot. I mean, the outreach I've received since Dr. J was on two weeks ago has been astounding. Like people are, it, it, there's an uproar happening right now. It almost feels like there's a bubble that's about to burst because people are tired of watching what happens to leaders and those of us who are trying to change systems, right? And so how how what is it you think we should do as black people as black women in these organizations to be able to succeed well first i think it starts with raising the level of consciousness around the issue right uh and not to sugarcoat it or to push it under the the rug Um, what i see is that we bring a variety of styles i mean styles are also there's an intersection of the styles based on where you're from. So I grew up in the South. Some people grow up in the North, Northeast. Different styles. Seattle has been known for being Seattle nights, right? Being kind of passive aggressive mm-hmm. and so forth. Not kind of really passive aggressive. <laughs> really, yeah. really passive aggressive. So I think it's really starting with raising the, uh, the level of consciousness about the way people communicate and talk that are not necessarily bad, they're just different. Uh, and uh, to, to, to really seek out to understand those differences uh, and to, to not be offended or pushed back on those or to make judgments about others because they, they come with a different style. Mm-hmm. Particularly uh, people that have, have good backgrounds in the work that they're doing and so forth, do not let impressions of that individual just by, by their demeanor and their approach uh, the second part of it is really start to engage in conversations and to talk about impact and intent, you know, in, in, in situations so that people get coaching and feedback on what they may be doing wrong both ways, not just uh, to black women, for example, but black women to white leaders in the organizations, just uh, creating environments where you can have a conversation about these things so that people are clear on expectations, they're clear on uh, relationships, and they're clear on that they can raise issues, they can feel like it's safe to talk about issues where they're feeling impacted more negatively than others. So I don't think there's a simple solution to it. I just think it starts with, one, helping people understand and raise the consciousness around the issues, but then also to, to engage in the conversations about it. Before we take a commercial, uh, we did get a question from the audience that says, uh, can you name a corporation that you consider as a model for DEI? (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Let me just say that I think corporations are human. And to ascribe, you know, a model of DEI for an organization uh, I don't think it's the right way to go about it. I think the, I think some organizations are good at recruiting. Some organizations are good at creating employee resource groups. I think some are good at integrating DEI into their strategic planning processes. I don't think 
there's anyone that's got it all right. I mean, on any given day in any co corporation, you can go and talk to a group of people, black people, black women, uh, Asian, LGBT representatives and so forth. And you'll find that there are challenges, there are issues. So I, I don't, there's no perfect organization. It's, it's really when you get leaders to become much more empathetic and inclusive in how they talk about this issue, how they invite conversation in, you know, about this issue and, and, and so forth. I, I think that's what I would say. I, don't, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't name any organization that's got it all right. I don't. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the leadership in the organization. So we're going to be back in a couple minutes. And half that up the sacks, our favorite black businesses. COVID-19 hurt my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. What's up, everybody? You know, me and Besa, my girl, we had to pull up to Market Street Shoes once again, y'all. And you know, we do this every season. We have to get the new shoes, the new boots, and this time I even got a coat. Yeah, no, you did walk in without a coat. I really I'm did. I'm glad you found one. But their boots were on point. Yes, the boots, the bags. I even grabbed a flannel. Yeah, you did. You know, and I was able to get some hats and everything. I was really impressed. And you know I was impressed because, of course, I got those white boots that you guys see me wearing everywhere these days. Yeah, no, I, I look at your white boots and I'm like, darn it, they only have one pair. Me and Basin wear the same size. Of course, every time we walk out with several bags in hand. Several bags and sometimes even a backpack, you guys. Make sure you check out Market Street Shoes. Yeah, please check them out. where they go, Basa? Ooh, 2232 Northwest Market Street, Seattle, Washington. One in every 500 African Americans in the U.S. suffers from sickle cell disease. One in three African American blood donors is a match for patients with sickle cell. One appointment to donate blood with the American Red Cross can help save a life. Will you be that one? Visit redcrossblood.org/ourblood today to schedule an appointment at a location near you. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. This evening joining me is FNS Henderson, uh, the CEO of Henderworks, excuse me, yeah, Henderworks, <laughs> former Chief Diversity Officer for Warehouser Company, National Urban League, Tacoma Urban League, has done a lot in his career. Um, we were talking before the break about uh, some of the uh, the impact of uh, the labor of being a chief diversity officer. And where I want to pick up now is to talk about what we should expect from leaders who are managing the chief diversity officer role. So my first question is, um, I've watched and seen how several of these uh, chief diversity jobs are positioned inside of an organization. Some are put in HR, some are put uh, directly to the CEO. Um, have you seen a successful model in terms of 
uh, a chief diversity officer's ability to influence change. Do you feel when it's in HR, did you report into HR as a chief diversity officer? I did, yeah, yes. you did. Okay. I couldn't remember. I was a, when I was there, Warehouser was 55,000 people. Mm -hmm. So a very large company. What's your thoughts about that now a days about reporting relationships? To me, uh, the more important issue is what is the organization trying to achieve with this DEI efforts? Um, and that requires having a heart to heart conversation with the, the C-suite, the CEO and the leadership team. Um, it's not um, acceptable just to expect that the CDO, whether they report in HR or directly to the CEO, uh, can carry this. Uh, it requires a change in leadership to understand this is an important issue and they've got to commit to it. They've got to spend the time talking about what they are doing individually and collectively as a leadership team to drive improvement in this area. They've got to understand the language. Oftentimes, I think uh, the buzzwords around D, diversity, equity and inclusion, people have misperceptions, for example, about what they are. And if your leaders don't fully understand that, uh, then there is a certain expectation of the DEI professional, and it's not to be at that strategic systemic level. And that's where oftentimes the rub comes in. You know, even in HR, if your DEI professional is reporting to the chief, uh, chief HR officer, if that officer doesn't fully understand or still has a compliance or legal frame for how they think about the work, then it sort of marginalizes that person inside the organization. Uh, so I, I think the first thing that uh, an effective uh, professional in DEI should do is to have the conversation with the leadership, the CEO, to talk about why is this important for us? Give them data and information about best practices, about what others are doing and how it's helped to achieve successful results. But to then get them to declare what their commitment level is and what the organization's commitment level is. Now, a number of organizations have done that in the last few years, but there has not been any follow through. Mm -hmm. To your point earlier about having a person with the appropriate level of resourcing, the kinds of staffing that's oftentimes needed and the, the types of changes they need to make in terms of their personal expectations about what they want leadership in the company, not just them, but leaders throughout the organization in terms of respectful behavior, creating a safe place for people to have courageous conversations and so forth. All of this um, is part of it. It's, there's no one right solution to it. But I would say that if, if you don't get leaders to talk about it and to fully commit and to actually role model and communicate that and hold people accountable, it makes it harder for that CDO to be successful. One of the shifts that happened uh, post George Floyd was that the DEI function added another letter to it, which was J. So it was DEIJ for justice. Mm -hmm. And when justice started, you know, the the workforce demanded that justice start to be handled by these organizations and they did make some statements in 2020 that they were going to seek justice, social justice. Have you seen that? Have you seen any organizations besides, you know, I'll give a shout out to, I think Ben and Jerry's not based here. Ben and Jerry's is an organization that actually 
says what they they mean what they say because I've watched a lot of their branding and so forth and I think from my perspective maybe the employees wouldn't agree with it but the visible company here in the northwest that has seems to be demonstrating that from my perspective is Nordstrom I was shocked at that but they seem to have a they've really made a change and pivot with who they're showing on their ads and they've really I've noticed a difference. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Have you noticed any justice being served or? Well, again, it depends on the context, the company, uh, the environment, their customers and so forth. I would agree Nordstrom uh, in this area is, is a firm that's done a lot of progressive work. There, there are others, but I think it's an ongoing struggle. You know, one day you may be doing very well, but the next day you discover, oh, what happened to their DEI officer? They left, right? And so there's this whole uh, generating, regenerating of a lot of the work that should just be work that you've already done to, to, to move the needle forward. Uh, so it's, uh, wow, I, I, it's, I don't I, I can't even give you a, a straight answer for, for that. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm having Which to think about that. Which speaks volumes to the question, right? <laughs> right. right? Um, and, and one of the other issues, Ephanis, um, is the, I'm kind of back to the chief diversity officer reporting into chief human resources, because my opinion about that is that it's disastrous because the chief human resources officers are generally using gender as their measurement of diversity. And so what that means for black women is that we're forced to work for women that don't understand justice mm -hmm. and equity and what that means. And so I have watched a lot in my, I mean, I've been out of corporate for a decade now and many of the black women I speak with describe the injustices that are happening to them by the function, the HR function, who's destroying their lives. What are your thoughts about that? Well, getting back to the question of adding the J to it, the question is, what does that mean? What is justice for the organization? Uh, is it racial justice? Is it social justice? Is it something more? I would agree. I think if you don't have a uh, progressive or forward thinking HR director to place uh, the chief diversity officer role underneath them is really to marginalize the role. That's why I think you start with the conversation with the leadership of the organization and to ask the question, why is this important for us to take and to take seriously in terms of uh, this work? Um, most of the progressive organizations are now tying it back not only to their day-to-day -day practices, but to, to their strategic plans. They're looking at a and it's going beyond, say, the workplace and the workforce to how do we think our, think about our relationships with our customers, with our suppliers, uh, with philanthropy and so forth, which would suggest to me that uh, a more appropriate role would be a direct reporting relationship to the CEO, because in that way you can help manage uh, and help guide the work and you're not filtered through another level of leadership in the organization. I think this work is, I mean, it's even now becoming part of what's called ESG, environment, social and governance kinds of activities as well. So it's broadening. Filtered is a polite word. <laughs> <laughs> because I, the word I would use is 
destroyed, right? Destructive. Yeah. Just what's happening between that level and the next level. So yes, I agree that, uh, that person should have the ear and the influence of the chief executive. When there's a person in between, it's being filtered is your word. Uh, and therefore you have to deal with some shift in the way things are, <laughs> are handled. We said we were going to use that word today. Um, what about the, the, you'll know this term, the net higher ratio. Let's just talk about um, how many people you, how many black people you hire, how many people you bring into the organization versus how many are leaving the organization. And that is your net hire ratio, right? Do you, does anybody still talk? I, mean, I haven't been in in a decade. So is that even a factor anymore? Because a lot of the companies are trying, used to just try to take credit to check the boxes, but they can't sustain the folks inside. And what's the average life cycle of a black woman? It's two years. And so what are your, um, well, let's start with the outcome. Okay. So if you've got your leaders talking about um, workforce composition, let's say as an outcome, let's say if um, the leaders talk about, we want to be an organization that has a workforce that represents the communities and the diversity of the communities, racial, ethnic, uh, um, gender, all of those things, then you have to say, okay, so where are we today, right? In terms of that composition. And where are the most significant gaps in representation? And then uh, you've got you got three factors in, in my mind that come into consideration. Uh, you're, you'll appreciate this is placements against opportunities in mm -hmm. those areas <laughs> where you have significant underutilization. So, for example, if you don't have black women at all in the organization, and you want to represent, and black women represent a large percentage of, of the workforce overall in the communities, then that would tell you that you ought to have a more aggressive strategies of outreach to black women and bringing them into the organization, but not just bringing them in or recruiting them, but what are the developmental strategies in terms of career growth and development? Are they on the succession list? Are they on uh, uh, developmental programs and so forth. Are they being mentored by those? Are they being sponsored? You hear a lot of uh, talk about the concept of sponsoring. And then on a year to year basis, to your point about the net, uh, it's what's the turnover rate? Uh, you're hiring, uh, particularly in those areas of underutilization, but they're leaving at a higher clip. So the question becomes, why is that happening? And what types of processes do you have in place to address that? Do you do, you do surveys to find out whether or not uh, people are um, um, leaving because of their experience in the, in the organization? A question came in for you, FNS. What would you consider your most significant impact at the areas of diversity at Weyerhaeuser? Uh, perhaps something you would consider your legacy? <laughs> well, I, who asked that? Oh, it is Carolee. I was like, let me look up and see who, who asked that question. Well, I, I think part of the legacy, and I don't attribute it to myself, but I, I attribute it to a team of people, uh, including one of my uh, my mentors and your mentors, Bill Mackey, mm -hmm. uh, who was a champion uh, and really was someone who championed the work. And, and he championed it not by just words, but by his actions in terms of support, development, and growth. And so if I were to say anything, I would say it, it wasn't, it isn't about 
me, but it's about how is the organization responding and how are the leaders progressing and growing. I think you have to meet people where they are. And coming out of the forest products industry uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was a different industry, a very different industry. Mm -hmm. And it had a lot of different things going on at the same time. That's why you have to also look at context, what's going on in an organization, because as you know, a lot of uh, organizational changes, restructuring, purchases of businesses, downsizing, shuttering of businesses. So all of those come into play. So it's not a simple, not a simple answer. I would say though, that one of the legacies up until it shifted uh, at the time uh, you and I left the firm was some of the things that we did to celebrate and to and bring attention to this through the annual observance, uh, Martin Luther King observance, where we actually would invite the CEO and leaders to come and speak about the issue. And by being in front of an audience, um, you know, it requires a leader to think mm-hmm. and, and to lean into co- uncomfortable conversations. And for me, I, I think part of the growth at Warehouse was at that time getting leaders who could lean into it a little bit more. You and I were very, very fortunate to work for Bill Mackey. And I want to talk about him for a minute. Um, I actually was sharing with you before the show started that uh, Bill, I think most people know Bill passed away many years ago, but his wife, Barbara, just passed away recently. Uh, And so um, that family, Bill and Barbara, I can't say enough good things about Bill, but I want to highlight some of his characteristics that he had that I feel, I mean, from all my experience that I've been in three major companies here, I've been out on my own and for a white man to take me under his wings the way that he did. And he helped me more than I can ever explain with how he coached and helped me and how he removed obstacles out of my way and how he advocated and championed for me. And he wasn't threatened or, you know, he didn't play games with people. Who he was with me was who he was with you. And I don't feel like there's a a good um, supply of those type of leaders anymore. Now, I'm not internal anymore, but I can base on what I'm hearing, particularly black women, because those are the women that come to me a lot. They don't have that kind of support. Um, And if they do, it's for a short term and it only takes the whimper of somebody else to change the trajectory of that that woman who's being mentored to throw that thing, to throw their development into a whole spiral. I remember you said to me, you probably remember you said this to me. We were in, I don't remember the meeting, but someone was speaking out about something and you you raised your hand and you said, I have, I would be careful about that because I have watched when people say or do that, it'll come back to bite them in another way. And you were referring to their performance system because that's the vehicle that is used to take out our careers. This is a long winded way of saying from a leadership perspective, what do you think are the characteristics of what an effective leader, particularly for black people, to be able to work for and with? Well, I I have to say that for me, I think it's an inclusive leader. Um, One of the things that we did at Weyerhaeuser, we actually asked the workforce 
of one of the attributes of an inclusive leader as part of a leadership development series that we did. And there were four characteristics that came to mind. One is this issue of trust, that if you are, you know, to your point, you know, what Bill said to you, he would say to me, mm-hmm. and there was no variance right. in, in that. It was the same clear, direct message and so forth. So, And that helped to engender trust that I felt comfortable, I felt safe, mm-hmm. uh, that he could uh, basically, um, that he was supporting me in a, in a positive way. Empathetic. He was, he, he very, was very empathetic. empathetic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the second uh, is expanding circles of influence. Um, oftentimes we, we see people who are situated in positions of power just really rallying around people who are similar to them. You know, that oh, I, you know, he went to Stanford or he went to Harvard or the University of Washington, whatever school it is. And it was those people who generally got favor. And um, there wasn't um, the ability to look at people that may have come from another university, particularly HBCUs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, because they, there was a perspective uh, that wasn't grounded in fact, uh, that those individuals could not perform or be as successful as those that were at those prestigious schools and so forth. Uh, third area is this whole idea of providing equal opportunity for growth and development. So um, that um, Bill, for example, was casting a wider net. He says, if we're serious about diversity and inclusion, let's make sure that those people that are being developed, you know, are, are very diverse. You know, it's not just one model of, of a successful candidate. And, and I think he did that. Uh, and then the other part of it is just communicating, talking about it. If you see instances where people are being are mistreated or something is not said that's based on facts uh, to challenge that, you know, I call it planting the seeds of doubt, particularly among uh, marginalized communities. Well, Cindy is good, but, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of or evidence is good, but. Did you see that about him? Which is a, is is an as mm. is, is a I call it casting aspersions and so forth. Uh, and so we have to be careful about that and challenge people when they do that and say that in organizations, because those become seeds of doubt, mm-hmm. and they build on each other. And so we have to be as inclusive and empathetic leaders really be willing to lean in, to understand, to listen. You may not ex- understand a person's experience, but to be there and to say, I'm here, I don't understand what you're going through, but is there anything I can do? Doing those kinds of things are the kinds of things that engender trust and uh, a feeling of belonging uh, and a a feeling of fairness in in an organization. Bill used to ask, I'll never forget this. He used to ask, what do you need of me? Like, what do you need me to do? How, How can I help you? Uh, And when the whispers, uh, to your point about the uh, back circle of uh, creating seeds of doubt about people would happen, Bill would address that head on. He wouldn't bite and automatically believe that because somebody raised an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just bringing that back now because... um, because I have watched how when uh, black leaders are exited, I'll just use the term exited, what is held against them can be very petty feedback or comments that people say about them that really have, I don't want to say no bearing, but 
you know, the person who's put in that seat of power, particularly in these equity and diversity jobs, is in kind of a no-win situation no matter which direction he or she goes. They're pushing an envelope uphill. And so if you think about equity, the kind of support that's needed in those roles are far greater than what the average person gets in their career, the coaching, mentoring, tackling, blocking. Do you see organizations that provide that kind of resource? And before you answer that question, I'm going to say that, you know, we look at their websites often and we and, and you can judge whether a company is actually progressing um, them, their leadership by their pages, their um, homepages, their leadership teams, you can see it. And so I ain't seen a lot of change at the leadership level. So that implies that the succession plans and the coaching and development is only getting people to a certain level. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and part of the challenge is, is we put too much uh, emphasis on individual leaders as opposed to the system. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and how that system um, impacts the lived experience, the feelings of inclusion and a sense of belonging of folks that are in the organization. And what I do know that uh, as a person of color, as African-American male, that, that we are highly sensitive people, sensing people, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, it's not just how you're talking to me one on one it's how I'm observing you in other interactions with others and so forth. And we are we can tell when something's not going right or not. not we correct. can sniff stuff. We, we can sniff stuff, stuff out. a mile away. Yes. <laughs> so um, whereas uh, you're a, a PN, a white uh, employees generally, and I don't want to stereotype, don't have as well-defined sensing skills. And so the things that we pick up on, uh, they oftentimes don't see. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's part of the reason why having the conversations, having the discussions, really inviting people to share their lived experiences helps people to become more cognizant, right, of, of those things, uh, because it's not, it doesn't come naturally for a lot of folks. And to that point about, you know, the folks who can't pick up on the cues that we um, as we're sitting on the 14th floor, we can smell it coming in on the entry level, right? Like that, you know, but what happens is that um, the undercurrent of people who are accustomed to being pleased continue to want us or uh, diverse leaders to please all of them. And that's not possible to do. And so when, and they, not only don't have sensing and um, those kind of skills, but the behaviors that are exhibited towards the, you know, black leadership um, can be pretty atrocious and executive leaders don't like to touch that kind of stuff. They don't want to get involved in that. And so, I don't know, I've just kind of watched a pattern of let's just change, like change the reporting relationship or do so just like get it out of my hair because I don't want to think about it or deal with it. Would you agree that work needs to be done on, for lack of a better word, the accusers versus the accused? Well, I want to start by saying um, 
the leaders don't want to touch that that question there i think that's that's very old school thinking leaders have got to start to lean into those very difficult conversations because they set the tone they reinforce the behavior and uh, they allow things to exist if, if it isn't called to their attention. And they can't be silent about it because silence to us uh, is a, a sign of disrespect or a sign of exclusion or marginalization. So I think, um, I think you, you really do have to um, uh, help leaders understand that they've got to talk about this, communicate and set expectations, much like what we, we saw in Bill, mm-hmm. um, because... <clears throat> People aren't going to tolerate when we first uh, when I first came into the workforce, it was a different era and people were really excited just to get a job in corporate America. Right. Today, people have particular high talent. Uh, people from diverse communities have all kinds of options and they're not going to sit around and wait for you to change. Uh, you know, they expect to see that on day one and to the degree they begin to notice and witness and seeing that uh, the likelihood of them staying around is going to to increase. You talk about this great resignation thing a couple of of years ago. I mean, part of it was because of the the clash of expectations, the clash of traditional practices and, and ways of doing things with the new way that younger professionals, much more diverse, who are ex- experienced at working in multiracial, multicultural organizations, um, you know, just took for granted in terms right. of this is the way it should be. Uh, and so organizations have got to, to pay much more attention to that. And they come from multicultural families. Families, exactly. Right. And so when you're in a family that's diverse and then you come into these environments that are not, it's like running into a brick wall like um yeah it's uh it's a lot well the other thing i just one other point uh, uh, before i forget it is that so there's an accountability there's an expectation uh that oftentimes people of color uh, black women black men uh should be more assertive in raising their hand about opportunities and promotion and engagement and and things that will help advance them but i would argue that it's also incumbent on the leadership team to be much more of uh let me let me pull you in let me invite you uh, to participate in this and to think of way particularly if you've got task forces, if you've got uh, work assignment, project assignments that aren't very diverse, to really understand why some of the people of color uh, aren't on those and to be much more intentional about uh, encouraging and inviting people to participate in those venues. And an extension of that sentence about the leader bringing them forward, the biggest role that that leader must play once that person is forward is to back them. It's to back them. It's to back them. And as soon as you don't back them, even though you may not understand or agree with it, you've set the that person up to fail. Right. And you've opened Pandora's box for complaints to come in and all the things that people don't want to see be successful. Evanis, I told you it was going to be a quick hour. It's a quick hour. Thank you for um, coming on with me this evening. And to our audience, you know, I'm keeping these conversations live because... It's the fight across this country now uh, to uh, continue to portray brown and black America as inferior to try to take this DEI work away and believe that it's not necessary 
It is absolutely necessary now more than ever as we enter another nasty political season. Thank you all for joining uh, me this evening. Thank you, FNS, for being on. We look forward to seeing you next week. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.